from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. About a century ago, the modern promotional idea of Florida was invented. The permanent sunny vacation on the beach, the south of France tropical razzle-dazzle art deco fantasies, followed by the Disney World, Miami Vice, Mar-a-Lago art basel fantasies. But there is also, as everywhere, poverty and struggle, depicted beautifully in a couple of excellent recent films. There was The Florida Project, which follows a a few exuberant, off-the-leash kids who live in a candy-colored, low-rent motel in the shadow of Disney World. Your kid killed my night. I wanted to watch the ball game. You're going to pay me for three hours that I got to work later? Hey, guys, pay the man for his three hours. I don't have any money. I don't have any money. We don't have any money, you're shit out of which... You haven't given me this week's rent yet. You don't think I know that, show? And then there was Moonlight, a coming-of-age film about growing up poor and black and gay in Miami. What's a faggot? A faggot is a word used to make gay people feel bad. Am I a faggot? No. could be gay, but you never let nobody call you no fag. And then, in addition to all that, there is one of my favorite social media achievements called Florida Man. Florida Man tries to walk out of store with chainsaw stuffed down his pants. That is a tweet from the account at underscore Florida Man. Don't leave out the underscore. It's a Twitter feed that shares perversely, darkly funny news stories about unfortunate people in Florida. Not all of them men, not all of them crime stories. Florida Man terrifies vacationing family with gunfire meant for iguana. We talked to the creators of Florida Man who declined to be interviewed on the air because they're anonymous. So, Florida. But they did say that the feed is inspired by news satire tropes like The Onion's Area Man Does X, Y, or Z. The Florida Man Twitter account started in 2013 and now has nearly 400,000 followers. Florida Man forced to apologize on Facebook for cannibaling on a manatee. On today's show, the Florida state of mind. A certain kind of Florida state of mind. I never wanted to write about Florida, but the thing is, you don't actually get to choose what you write about. The novelist and short story writer Lauren Groff never imagined herself living in Florida. And then, 12 years ago, ended up there. And by the way, a large majority of Floridians come from someplace else, the third most of any state. When I first came down here, I was astonished by how nature seemed to want to kill you at every turn. The mosquitoes, the palmettos are sharp, so you go out into the yard and they cut up your ankles. Uh, The alligators, there are all sorts of very weird insects. I mean, they call them 
uh, palmetto bugs, but they're really just flying cockroaches that are about three inches long. There's snakes everywhere. I just, I just had a snake in the house. I stood for a long time at the duck pond with my dog, who sensed that she should be still and patient. The swans were on their island with the geese, and a great blue heron legged through the shallow water. I watched as the heron became a statue, then as it whipped its head down and speared something. When it lifted its beak, it held a long, thin water snake. We watched, transfixed, as the bird cracked its head down so hard three times that the snake separated in half, spilling blood. And the heron swallowed one half, which was still so alive that I could see it thrashing down that long and elegant throat. So the nature is just teeming, and it's wild, and it's almost uncontrollable. It feels as though it's, it's a force of its own that makes its way into your house whether or not you want it to. And in some ways, it seems as though Florida is trying to tell humans that you really don't belong here. I'm from a very small town in upstate New York called Cooperstown, which most people know about because it's where the Baseball Hall of Fame is. It's just a stunningly beautiful place, and it's a place, you know, that has very severe standard seasons, and it's a very small village as well. It was kind of idyllic. I think when you grow up in upstate New York or in the north, you tend to see Florida as this hot, moist, strange place, this place where it foments a lot of the craziness of America. I looked down on Florida for many, many years. When I first started dating my husband, we were in college uh, in Massachusetts, and he is a Floridian, bred to the bone. And we came down to Florida to visit his family. And what I knew of Florida was basically Disney World at that time. And uh, his his family home, which is in this subdivision, it's very nice, uh, but it's, it is a gated community and it's very separate from the rest of the town. And there are no sidewalks. And I thought this is just a very strange mode of life. And I think that was the first thing I said when we were on the plane going back to Western Massachusetts. But I will never live in Florida. After grad school, he had this opportunity to take over his family business down in Gainesville, Florida. And so we made the decision to come down here. I tucked two bottles and a corkscrew into my sleeves and pulled myself to the doorway against the tug of wind. I could barely walk when I was through. The house heaved around me and the wind followed, overturning clocks and chairs, paging through the sheet music on the piano before snatching it up and carrying it away. It riffled through my books one by one as if searching for marginalia, then toppled the bookshelves. This book is called Florida, and it's my fifth book. It's a short story collection built around the idea of Florida and the the physical nature of the place uh, and how it sort of um, infects its characters within this book with 
a kind of feeling of both dread and resistance to being domesticated. There's this uh, pressure, this internal and external force of domesticity, but also resistance to domesticity, the seduction of nature. The water pushed upward from under the house, through the floor cracks, through the vents, turning my rugs into marshes. Rats scampered up the stairs to my bedroom. I trudged over the mess and crawled up, step by step, on my hands and knees. A terrapin passed me, then a raccoon with a baby clutched to its back, gazing at me with wide robber's eyes. Peekaboo, I said, and it hid its face in its mother's ruff. In the light of a battery-powered alarm clock, I saw rats, a snake, a possum, a heap of bugs scattered across the room, as if gathered for a slumber party. All those gleaming eyes in the dark. The bathroom was the sole windowless place at the heart of the house, and when I was inside, I locked them all out. I didn't know I was writing a short story collection about Florida until about two years ago when I took a look at all the stories that I'd published over the past few years. And I realized that they had a, a shared thematic sense of insiderness and outsiderness of uh, nature and domesticity of Florida itself, sometimes tangentially as, as a character. And then I thought about how I could put them together to create a larger argument about the country as a whole and about what it is to be a woman raising boys in this contemporary world. In February, one day, I found myself sad to the bone. A man had been appointed to take care of the environment, even though his only desire was to squash the environment like a cockroach. I was thinking about the world my children will inherit. The clouds of monarchs they won't ever see. The underwater sound of the mouths of small fish chewing the living coral reefs that they will never hear. Becoming a Floridian was a really difficult transition for me. I still, even now, 12 years later, wake up thinking, oh my gosh, this is my life, I live in Florida. But I really do love what Florida gives me because I, I, I feel so ambivalent about it. And I think ambivalence is a very strong, beautiful drive in fiction because People think that it's uh, wishy-washiness, but it's the opposite. It's being pulled in many directions by incredibly powerful forces. And some of my forces are rooted deeply in dislike, and other ones are in profound adoration and love. And so think of me as a spider suspended um, between all of these really intense feelings about this place where I've ended up despite myself. She was once a northerner dazzled by the frenzied flora and fauna here. But that was a decade ago, 
and things that once were alien life have become simply parts of her life. She is no longer frightened of reptiles, she who is frightened of everything. She is frightened of climate change. This summer, the hottest on record, plants dying all around. She is frightened of the small sinkhole that opened in the rain yesterday near the southeast corner of her house. And maybe the shy, exploratory first steps of a much larger sinkhole. She is frightened of her children because now that they've arrived in the world, she has to stay here for as long as she can. But not longer than they do. That story was produced by Studio 360's Lauren Hansen. Lauren Groff's latest story collection is called Florida, and it is out now. Florida man arrested for directing traffic while also urinating. Coming up. A warning from another Florida writer, Carl Hyacinth. You know, I've been trying to scare people away from Florida for literally 35 years, and I still get letters from readers saying, we love your books, but please don't be mad. We're moving to Florida anyway. (laughs) The novelist's love-hate relationship with his home state. That's next on Studio 360. Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, offering a language program that uses interactive dialogue and speech recognition technology to teach a new language, like Spanish, French, or Italian. Babbel is available in the App Store or online at babbel.com. Studio 360. The novelist Carl Hyacin has been writing crime stories for decades, some of them true. Early in his career, he served on the Miami Herald's investigations team, reporting on medical malpractice and drug smuggling. Then he started writing novels about freaks doing criminally freaky things all set in Florida. You think Florida's a zany, grotesque place with more grifters and nutballs and sleazy developers and corrupt politicians than anywhere else in America? Well, that's pretty much Carl Hyacinth's doing. On the hottest day of July, trolling in dead calm waters near Key West, a tourist named James Maybury reeled up a human arm. His wife flew to the bow of the boat and tossed her breakfast burritos. That's the opening scene of Hyacinth's novel Bad Monkey from 2013. What are you waiting for, James Maybury barked at the mate. Get that thing off my line. The kid tugged and twisted, but the barb of the hook was embedded in bone. Finally, the captain came down from the bridge and used bent-nosed pliers to free the decomposing limb, which he placed on shaved ice in a deck box. James Maybury said, For Christ's sake, now where are we supposed to put our fish? We'll figure that out when you actually catch one. The story shifts to a disgraced police detective named Andrew Yancey, who learns about the severed limb and becomes determined to figure out where it came from. Well, Yancey is a cop, sort of imagines himself a hotshot detective in the Keys, Monroe County, and uh, he gets in some trouble, romantic trouble, ends up losing his badge, and they demote him. 
but he, he's trying to get back on the regular police force by solving this arm is floated and it was caught by a tourist on a fishing boat and everyone thinks it's obviously a victim of a boating accident, somebody that got hit in the propeller or whatever and he, he's suspicious and so he sets off and the arm ends up in his freezer in his personal in the freezer with the popsicles for a great length of time and, and he feels now an obligation to it. The, the book's bad guys, this fraudulent Medicare profiteer, <laughs> and, and you call in the book South Florida America's Medicare fraud capital. Yeah, it is. Uh, which you've also written about in columns. Yes. Uh, Medicare fraud. D- do you at this point think of your day job as a kind of R&D's end of your yeah, fiction writing? That's absolutely true, Kurt. I mean, I probably couldn't write the novels I write if I didn't at least have one toe in the newsroom. And in, in the sense, not that I'm physically there, but I'm writing and I'm engaged and I'm reading all the different newspapers in Florida. And so this constant over-the-transom flow of sleaze inspires the novel. It can't help to – it also keeps you angry enough because you know that. I mean a lot of the funniest writers I know, funniest people I know, have a deep vein of anger. And it's a sense of sort of ironic outrage at things. And and they're not happy-go-lucky people. I mean they're writing for a reason. If you go back, Mark Twain was not not a sunny personality most of the time. So this is how you get it out. Uh, and for a guy who, who writes very angrily a lot, you don't <laughs> seem angry at all. Maybe you get it out in your writing. I get it. I mean, it's pure. I tell people it's psychotherapy for me. I'd do it if I didn't have to do it, I think. And, and I have been since. I mean, the feeling started when I was very young. I mean, I was five or six when they started paving my childhood. Right? You know, the boom years of Florida back in the late 50s, early 60s, all throughout, just watching it disappear. Even as a kid, you have a sense of outrage. I don't know. You didn't know politically what was, how did this yep. happen? How did they do it? But it still pissed you off. Yep. And so I vented from an early age and I got lucky and later went to work for the newspaper and got a newspaper column eventually and I got to vent there a lot. But the books are good too because I get to write my own endings on the books. (laughs) You, you, You called South Florida in one of your recent columns the poster child for national dysfunction. Why is that? Why, why so much weirdness and rot in this one place? And at this point, as I said at the outset, thanks partly to you, all of America regards Florida as this special, unfortunate case. I don't, it, it's always been a land where dreamers have come. And when you have people with a dream and with an image and sort of an iconic sense of we're going to move down there and everything's going to be fine, you also have a predatory element that moves with it. it attra- I, I've always told people, I said, if you are a car thief, for example, if you steal cars for a living, would you rather steal cars in Detroit, Michigan in January or on Miami Beach in January? Where would you rather be? Yeah. So it makes sense. Now, other than the fact that you like to play golf and you, or at least you've written about playing golf and you like to fish, uh, does it ever strike you as odd that you you choose to live in this place that you have made a career sort of savaging and satirizing? Yeah, I've been trying to scare people away from Florida for literally 35 years. And I still get letters from readers saying, we love your books, but Please don't be mad. We're moving to Florida anyway. <laughs> um, where else? Am, I mean, I really have roots. I love the place enough to stay and fight. A lot of it's be easy to bail out and move to, you know, Santa Fe or something, and, yeah. and put on some clogs and walk around and look at the art galleries or whatever. But I can't. I can't do that. You can't disengage. It's the same way. Many, many writers. So many writers are connected to New York. Right. Even despite its. Expense, its difficulty, and, 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 and all that. Frustrations yeah. and, and all the headaches. They could never pull themselves away to be creative somewhere else. Yeah. And that's sort of the way I feel. Um, the Demi Moore movie, the Demi Moore movie, rather, uh, Striptease, was an adaptation of your novel. Mm. As a chronicler of eccentrics and sleaze, how did Hollywood stack up uh, against South Florida? They were very nice to me. 
everybody was, to me was everything. I went in with very modest expectations, if I can put it like that. You know, I didn't, I mean, you know, when you have a nightclub in the book called The Eager Beaver, you know, this is not Citizen Kane material. I never went in with that thinking that. I Citizen thought, Kane wasn't Citizen Kane yeah, material. Yeah, right. But, <laughs> but you know, and, the, and I always tell people, say, oh, but I didn't look what they did to your book. And I yeah. said, they didn't do anything to my book. Right. They made a movie. Exactly. If you can pick the book out of the shelf in the library and it's the same book, you can't take it too seriously. I know writers that have been completely poleaxed by the whole Hollywood experience, and they take it so intensely and personally. But Just go in with zero expectations. No, and also it, the whole process is satirical in, in many ways. Meetings and the notes you get are, you have to, if you can't laugh, you'll go out yeah. of your mind. Uh, I was happy to see on your bio on your website that you say of that film, Burt Reynolds slathered from neck to toes <laughs> with Vaseline is one of the golden moments in modern American cinema. Your fellow Floridian. Yeah, Bert. Bert. He uh, was he was a he was a trip on the set. I'll tell you, and he was very nice to me. But but the you know that one scene which was right out of the book, and I had modeled his character after my own congressman who had gotten busted in a strip joint. You know, I I just rip poached it from the headlines, and the guy passed away right before the movie came out. And I always felt bad because he would have been so flattered. He looked nothing like Burt Reynolds. I can assure you. I think uh, Herb Burke was his name. I think he would have been very thrilled to have been portrayed, even the way Burt did it. You published quite a few novels before your your big commercial breakthrough, Striptease. That is a lot of writing and publishing to do before the world says, my God, you're this great best-selling novelist. Um, Did you ever get close to saying, eh, maybe this isn't working out? Never, never, because you know what? I always had great, I always, you, you know what it's like when the box of books comes, you know, you busted your ass writing this thing and then months go by it's like this gestation and then the books come and it's still a big high to do it yeah. and I, I never felt like giving up because the other thing is I had to do it Kurt I was working in the newsroom all day then you know and then on the investigations team where we don't write we didn't write that much right you know you might write one every once every three or four months on a project so you get all this writing energy built up and the books were what got me through that so I wouldn't have stopped no matter how many rejection letters you, you felt fortunate to be published I feel I still do. Yeah, still do. Carl Hyacin, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was, it's great fun. Carl Hyacin's latest book is called "Assume the Worst: The Graduation Speech You'll Never Hear." The readings of "Bad Monkey" were from the audiobook, read by Artie Johnson, the Artie Johnson. Florida man tries to convince woman to buy, cook, eat iguanas duct taped to his bike. The biggest tourist draw in Florida is Disney World. Opened in 1971, 16 years after Disneyland in California. Disney World was envisioned originally by Walt Disney to be the perfect place, a kind of utopia. And it was a vision that he wanted to extend outside the gates of the theme parks. Unfortunately, he died just before Disney World got built. But as it turned out, the Disney company never totally gave up on Walt's idea of building the perfect city, of bringing its signature brand of super sweet niceness into the real world, a full-time live-in Disney experience. On a corner of their giant holdings in Florida, in 1993, the company founded a brand new town. So take a left. 
Instead of a future Epcot place, though, what they built is more like Disneyland's Main Street USA, with cute little shops, charming houses, green town squares. And even in the rain, it's movie set perfect. This looks like Mary Poppins. Yeah, this is lovely. This is We're on a square on Mulberry Avenue with attached white townhouses built around a square. That's pretty lovely. My producer Jenny and I drove all around the town of Celebration, Florida, population 7,427. Oh, this must be the school. Yes, this is Celebration School on our right, K through 8. I remember my kids were little. They were probably like four and five at the time. We were sitting on the carpet in the living room, and people walked up to the door, and they knocked. And I was like, Sunday morning, okay. And I opened the door, and I'm like, can I help you? And they're like, well, yeah, we just wanted to come in and see your house. This is Susan Bona, who moved here in the early 90s. She owns the Celebration Town Tavern. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> you know, no, I said, we live here. Well, yeah, but don't you, like, show people? I'm like, no, the model homes, and, you know, I kind of explained where they were, but... That's what the perception was right. with anybody who that came to this town. That you were a cast town. member. Absolutely. We were paid to walk our dogs. Yeah. That's what I was told once. Were you paid to walk your dog? Uh, no, it just has to go to the really? bathroom. it's like Sturbridge Village. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. But it wasn't just visitors who assumed celebration was part of Disney World. Susan Bona says that lots of people moved here to live the Disney dream 24-7 people moved here and they maybe weren't happy in their lives in other places and they thought, well, I'm going to Disney World because, you know, I know Tinkerbell's going to sprinkle that pixie dust and we're going to have a happy family now. Well, yeah, not so much. They Gates, really did want a fantasy land. I believe so. Yeah. I kept saying, I was the one that would say, guys, it's real world. Like, I don't want the monorail coming in. It's already just five minutes down the road. I don't know what you're thinking. Let's go down an alley. And here are all the garages back in the alley between the streets, which is brilliant and how every suburb should be built. Having grown up in a suburb with garages at the back, this is like the nicest version of an alley I've ever seen. Yeah. No garbage cans out. Oh, there's one garbage can out. It's true. There's something weird about those alleys. I was talking with the influential architect and town planner Andres Duani about Celebration, and he immediately put his finger on it. The alley is where things happen. That's where you open the garage door, drag out the couch. That's where your kid can actually make mud with a hose. That's where your husband can take a motorcycle apart and not put it back together and so forth. You know, I believe that the alley is what allows the front to be neat. But this is exactly where Celebration becomes too Disney, too perfect, almost un-American. The front is exceedingly neat, and so are the alleys. And so it's a bit of a pressure cooker, I think. You know, they're all landscaped and swept and flowers. I, I just find that disgusting. Well, and what's interesting, of course, is that now having been to Disneyland and Disney World and been backstage as well as in the parks, what they've done there in celebration is illuminate backstage. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so you did get to go to the backstage? Yeah, of, yeah. I have also, you know, uh, I think people imagine it to be all sorts of machinery and, you know, Jules Verne kind of stuff. If only. Actually, they keep us away from it because it's banal. Yeah, exactly. Didn't it look like a high school basement? Yeah, yeah, it's nothing. I think they prefer the myth <laughs> that something really incredible is happening That's down there. That's probably true. Yeah. My name is Jim Siegel, last name spelled S-I-E-G-E-L. Great. And how long have you lived in Celebration? Lived here since 2002. Jim Siegel is a retired Ford executive. 
He moved down here from Detroit. Jim, his wife Marita, and their adult daughter Julie are Disney fans. Like, fanatical. We were down here 33 times before we ever moved in. You kept track of the number. Yeah. And yes, Julie's very good about that. Even though I was getting straight A's and I was supposed to be a, a salutatorian or valedictorian, I had the highest absence record in my high school's history because we came down to Disney so much. They came to Celebration because they couldn't be close enough to Disney World. And although Disney sold downtown Celebration to another developer in 2004, the town still has theme park in its DNA. Like at Christmas time, when downtown is a blizzard of snope. The snope, as an OAP, it's a combination of snow and soap, which they actually do use in the parks at Disney. Don't stick your tongue out, listeners, if you ever come to Celebration and and enjoy our snope because it's soap. It, it just is foamy and fun, and they play Christmas music, and that's when we have our ice skating rink out. That's obviously not real ice. Santa's house is there, and um, you can do carriage rides with horses. But even living in Celebration isn't Disney enough for Julie and Marita. There's a kind of happy that they feel at the park, only there, nowhere else. When you go into Disney, you're so taken by the magic and the pop experience that you build these endorphins, and we'd always come out just so happy. It, it is. It's one of the happiest places on Earth. What is it that you feel at Disney that you don't feel anywhere else? I feel like I am... I can't, it's so hard to put into words, but I feel like I'm someone special, even though there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of other people around me. I am someone special, and I matter, because that's what the Disney cast member's job is, is to make me matter. To hear a lot more about our expedition to the happiest place on Earth, check out the full American Icons episode on the Disney parks at studio360.org. Coming up... It's one of those things where you wind up jumping over alligators and being charged by wild boars. The Florida ecosphere that inspired Jeff Vandermeer's apocalyptic novel, Annihilation. That's next on Studio 360. Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, a language app that teaches real-life conversations in a new language, like Spanish, French, or German. Babbel's 10 to 15-minute lessons are available in the App Store or online at babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L, dot Studio 360. The author Judy Bloom mostly grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, just across from New York City. But for most of 1946 and 47 and 48, when she was 9 and 10, Bloom lived in Miami Beach. She eventually wrote a novel for kids based on those two years called Starring Sally J. Friedman as Herself. Bloom says it's her most autobiographical work of fiction. Alicia Zuckerman took a walk with Judy Bloom around her old Miami stomping grounds. 
This story starts with a walk in my neighborhood. I'm walking across 13th Street from my apartment directly to where she lived on Miami Beach at 1330 Pennsylvania Avenue. 1300, almost there. Sunbright furnished apartments, 1330 Pennsylvania Avenue. I am here. Hi. Hi! Oh my God, it's such an amazing oh, this is so treat to meet you. Exciting for you, it's yes, exciting for me. It's exciting for me because it's my childhood. Oh my God, I love your glasses. Purple is my favorite color. Mine too. This is Judy Bloom, my childhood hero. Judy Bloom, who wrote Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing, Super Fudge, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, Deanie, Blubber, Forever. But we're here to talk about starring Sally J. Friedman as herself. The book came out in 1977, and I loved this book. I read it over and over. When I moved to Miami Beach as an adult, there were things about the neighborhood that felt familiar, which didn't make any sense. I grew up in New York. I'd only been to Miami Beach twice, once to visit my great-grandma Sadie when I was about five, and once for a bachelorette party. But it was like I kind of had memories of this place, from reading the book, from reading starring Sally J. Friedman as herself. 1330 Pennsylvania Avenue is where Sally lived, and it's where Judy Bloom lived. It's also the first stop on what I've decided to call the Sally J. Friedman reality tour. It was so different. Oh, it was so different. There was a big fish pond in the center of this courtyard. And that's there was in always the book. a courtyard. They took a taxi to 1330 Pennsylvania Avenue, a pink stucco U-shaped building with a goldfish pool in front. Oh yeah, it's all in the book. Those two years were the most important two years of my childhood. We came here for the winters, for the school year, really. My mother, of course, wouldn't leave New Jersey until she thought hurricane season was over. So we went to school in Elizabeth, New Jersey, until just before Halloween. And then we came to Miami Beach. For two years, we did this 46, 47, 47, 48. Judy Bloom's family came here because, like in the book, her brother got a kidney infection, and the doctor didn't think it would be a good idea for him to spend the winter up north. That was pretty common back then. There were lots of snowbirds for health reasons, and lots of those families were Jewish, like Judy's. It was all, you know, grandma, mother, and children. And then the fathers stayed behind wherever they were. Mom opened the windows while Sally went looking for the bedrooms. All she could find was a tiny kitchen, a breakfast nook, a bathroom, and an alcove. So this was a little furnished apartment. Between the one room, the living room, and the bathroom was this little L with a Murphy bed, which I thought was just the greatest thing I had ever seen. You see, it fits right into the wall. My mother and my grandmother slept together in that Murphy bed. But you know, I didn't think there was any hardship. I loved it. I loved the freedom of living here. I loved playing outside every night till it got dark. I loved that my mother seemed so much less anxious. In the book, Sally's mom is actually incredibly anxious, nervous about everything. Athlete's foot, airplanes, cats. He was the most beautiful cat Sally had ever seen. But mom said he might be pretty, but cats can be full of worms, so watch out. But the book is basically a slightly fictionalized autobiography of Judy Bloom's life here during those two years. Miss Swetnick, Miss Swetnick, Sally My fourth grade teacher, Helen Swetnick. That was her real name? That was her real name. And you put her real name in the book. I was insane, and nobody stopped me from using real names. But Peter Hornstein is really Peter Hornick. (laughs) Sally felt a tug on her right braid. 
She whipped around in her seat to tell Peter Hornstein to leave her hair alone once and for all. You know, he dipped my braids in um, his inkwell, though. He did do that. But, oh, I, I loved him. He may have been the first boy I loved. <laughs> she turned nine here and then ten. I think it was in these uh, two years that I spent in Miami Beach that I lost my shyness. I was a fearful child, anxious and fearful. I don't remember being that way here. But even as she was getting less shy and less anxious, she still lived a lot of her life inside her head. I played a lot with paper dolls because in my head I was making up stories. And someone came to my mother and said, she is too old to be playing with paper dolls. Sally heard her say to mom, When my bubbles was that age, she was sewing her own clothes and reading fine literature from the library. But I wasn't playing with paper dolls like a little kid. I was playing with paper dolls with all these really exciting um, melodramas going on inside my head. That's, That's what made me a writer, not writing stories down. After we leave her old apartment building, we walk over to Flamingo Park. This was like a long bike ride, I thought, from where I lived. It's really only a few blocks. On every Friday night, we went to roller skating in the park. I can still remember Dance, Ballerina Dance, and that was one of the songs that was played when we were roller skating. Dance, ballerina, dance. Dance, ballerina, dance. And do your pirouette in rhythm with your aching From Flamingo Park, we walk over to the beach to look at the ocean. Look at this. Oh, God, it's so great. I loved the ocean. Low tide. You walked forever. The water here was warm and clear and blue-green, and when it was low tide, you could walk way, way out. My grandmother would prepare a big basket with lunch, and my favorite was egg salad sandwiches. And I loved the crunch, which I now realize was sand. You know, maybe on my hands or something. It was always crunch. It wasn't eggshells. For most of us, if we're honest, memories of our childhood are foggy. Maybe we remember details of big things like a great birthday present or getting hurt badly. But not day-to-day life, not like Judy. I think that people who write for and about kids, I think we just have a special connection to our own childhoods. Alicia Zuckerman with Judy Bloom in South Florida. Readings from the book were by Goldie Lieberperson. Judy Bloom is now 80 and owns a bookstore in Key West called Books and Books. What you heard was an excerpt from a story that originally aired on WLRN in Miami, part of an entire hour they did about Judy Bloom. Florida man attacked during selfie with squirrel. Jeff Vandermeer is a science fiction author, also a fantasy and horror author, and sometimes a writer of literary fiction. All those tendencies feature in the Southern Reach trilogy, his three brisk novels about a clandestine government agency whose mission is to investigate Area X, a piece of Florida that's been invaded by some mysterious otherworldly force. The first of the series, Annihilation, was made into a movie earlier this year starring Natalie Portman. 
about an expedition of scientists, all of them women, into Area X, which in the movie is called The Shimmer. This used to be the headquarters of the Southern Reach before the Shimmer swallowed it. More mutations. They're everywhere. Jeff Vandermeer told me the premise for the book came to him in a dream. So I was... uh walking down this uh, this tunnel into the earth and seeing these kind of letters on the wall that were or words that were written uh, in some kind of living material. And I, I came to a point where I knew I was going to see whatever was writing them because the words were getting fresher, so to speak. And uh, at that point, my writer brain, I think, basically decided to airlift me out. And I woke up uh, and I wrote down the words on the wall and also what I just, just experienced. Um, and if I had seen what was there, I probably wouldn't have started writing in the morning when I woke up again. Do you always dream as vividly and specifically as this? I do, uh, but most of the time it doesn't lead to story. Um, if I don't eventually come to an understanding of a character and what that character wants and where they're going and, and other details, then it's just a dream that might be possibly entertaining to tell to a friend and maybe not. Yeah. Well, and saying, I had a dream, and then I decided to write a novel about it, sounds like one of those things that would-be writers come up to you at events and say. Sure, sure, absolutely. <laughs> and and it could have easily have come to me from a newspaper clipping or anything else uh, because you get into this state where whatever, you know, certain things kind of – uh, interconnect and layer on each other. So the the conscious impulse was that for a long time I've been wanting to write about Florida in some way or that kind of southern wilderness. And so the conscious prompt was was that. And then this other thing kind of connected with it. And then the character of the biologist came into my mind. Florida, where you live, I, yes. want, I want to mention. You persuaded a rock band, Murder by Death, to, to write music based on one of your earlier books called Finch. Before... I have you read a little bit from Annihilation. Is there some band you'd like us to play under the passage? Um, well, there is actually a, a great song uh, by Murder by Death that, that kind of fits uh, some of this. But there's also, I have to say, all of the Tindersticks uh, movie music <laughs> and most of Mogwa's music I was listening to while I was while I was writing this stuff. So, Well, let's go with Murder by Death since you guys have some history. Mm. If you could read from near the beginning when the team of scientists have entered this mysterious tower for the first time and they see the weird gunk growing on the walls? All right. Don't touch it, whatever it is, the anthropologist warned. I nodded, but I was too enthralled with the discovery. If I'd had the impulse to touch the words on the wall, I would not have been able to stop myself. In as calm a voice as I could manage, aware of the importance of that moment, I read from the beginning aloud. Where lies the strangling fruit that came from the hand of the sinner, I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead to share with the worms that then the darkness took it. That is Jeff Vandermeer reading from his novel, Annihilation. Uh, so it's I don't think it's a huge spoiler to say that the tower ends up being a living thing mm-hmm. um, with all sorts of fungi and moss and spores. Uh, do you dream about fungi, or is, has, has this been a long-term uh, fixation? You write a lot about I, it. I, uh, I think it's actually a fairly small component of this book and not at all in the second, but it, it has been a preoccupation in the past just because, again, you know, some people have, have, have kind of mentioned literary influences for this book, and in actual fact, I think more more of the natural world is in this book than literary influences. And so, you know, I study a lot of kind of – I'm kind of an amateur biologist in a way. And uh, I study a lot of this stuff, and you f- you find out facts and information that that just kind of blow your mind as to 
the diversity and complexity and beauty of, of the world that we have around us that we maybe sometimes don't recognize. So does it make you sort of pita-ish about eating mushrooms? <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> Fruiting bodies are perfectly fine. <laughs> uh, in Annihilation, as you say, there's lots of descriptions of of the Area X landscape. And you, you wanted to write about it and this part of Florida where you live because, oh, this eco-apocalyptic novel I have in mind would work really well here where I live? <laughs> no, it's actually just it kind of came naturally to me. Once I had the character of the biologist down and an idea of who she was and then the other characters, uh, there's this 14-mile this hike I do out at St. Mark's Wildlife Refuge. And it's kind of like when you know somebody— That's a serious hike. It's a serious hike. It is. It's, uh, it's one of those things where you wind up jumping over alligators and being charged by wild boars and cool. all kinds of stuff. But the, uh, the, the thing there is, is just simply that just like a, when you— take somebody that you know and you use them as the basis for a character. The same thing is sometimes true of a setting. And so it is transformed. It is accurate to some degree, but it, it's definitely kind of one degree separated from, from from the reality of the place. And maybe you'll be good for tourism now and people will come to, to right, find be, these horrible things. Right, there'll be Southern Reach tours in St. Mark's. Uh, and your biologist character, who's the main character, uh, is with a, the psychologist, the anthropologist, the surveyor. Why no names? Well, there's a practical reason uh, that the Southern Reach, the secret agency sending in these expeditions, does that. And that's because the first expeditions that use names as opposed to functions, that use modern technology like uh, smartphones and whatnot, uh, came to horrible, horrible ends. And it seemed like those that names and also certain forms of communication uh, were very easily exploited by whatever's there. And so there is that aspect. But then also... Without the names, um, they kind of are subsumed by the landscape a little bit more. You have to interpret their, them more by their actions, their words, their interactions, and I found that very interesting. It also it seems artier and more literary, too. I don't know that the, I really thought about that. I'm not really that calculating in that way. I'm sure not. Uh, but what, why four women? All, all these main characters are women. It came to me as four women, uh, and then I just decided not to change it because there are certain things you just don't change. Um, that you, you that keep working with. And then after a while, I just thought it was kind of cool that they were four women and I just went with it. I'd like to have you read some more, if you would. Uh, at a certain point in Annihilation, we know there have been earlier expeditions to Area X and that our biologist's husband was on one of them. She ends up finding this journal that he'd kept. If you could read from that. Mm -hmm. And we'll score it again with a little more music from the band Murder by Death. Instead, the same habitat confronted them day after day. We're heading north, I believe, he wrote, but even though we cover a good 15 to 20 miles by nightfall, nothing has changed. It is all the same. Although he also was quite emphatic that he did not mean that they were somehow caught in a strange recurring loop. Yet he knew that, by all rights, we should have encountered the border by now. Indeed, they were well into an expanse of what he called the southern reach that had not yet been charted. Quote, that we had been encouraged by the vagueness of our superiors to assume existed back beyond the border. I, too, knew that Area X ended abruptly not far past the lighthouse. How did I know this? Our superiors had told us during training. So, in fact, I knew nothing at all. Jeff Vandermeer reading from his novel Annihilation. It seems to me as if in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, that the, the, the ghettos that existed for most of the 20th century between here's science fiction in its little ghetto, here's mm -hmm. fantasy in its little... Those borderlands are, are are breaking down, and that like good stories are good stories, and literary authors are doing 
fantasy and science fiction. Does that feel that way to you? It, it does. It feels like it first came about because of pop culture and kind of a certain commodification, which was actually like a step back. And then it became became something where Margaret Atwood and a few others... You mean the Star Wars Yeah, I actually thing? think that was yeah. a step back because it became reflected in the literature a little bit. And it became harder to do something that if you had influences that right. were like Kafka, that you could get away with it within those imprints. But now, like you said, the, the borders are kind of breaking down. For me, where I always have felt like I have a foot in both camps and belong to neither in a way, <laughs> it's, it's, it's both interesting and, and just kind of the way I operate anyway. It does seem like the camps that still exist uh, are, are science fiction versus fantasy mm. among writers and readers. You uh, are straddling both. Right. Well, I mean, and even in the second novel, Authority, I thought, how how do I write a supernatural novel that isn't supernatural? And so there's all kinds of things going on. Um, I just uh, I just pretty much ignore labels as much as I humanly can. Well, since you so carefully consider what music should accompany your work, is there a song before I let you go that we should play you out on? <laughs> um, wow, that's a, that's a tough one. The Jeff Vandermeer the anthem. Jeff Vandermeer anthem. <laughs> Um, my gosh, I'm I'm not. I think something from Three Mile Pilot. From uh, I think there's a song with C in the title on on one of their albums, and that's a good one. We'll find it. Jeff Vandermeer, thank you very much. Thank you. Jeff Vandermeer is the author of the Southern Reach trilogy. His latest novel is called Born, and it's out now. And that's it for this week's show. Thanks to Richard Hake, the host of Morning Edition on WNYC, for reading those Florida Man tweets. Florida Man suspected of using private plane to draw giant radar penis. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, where this week you can hear, and only there this week here, my conversation with Ari Aster, the writer and director of the very good, very scary new movie, Hereditary. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was engineered by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. I'm Kurt Anderson. He looked nothing like Burt Reynolds, I can assure you. Thanks for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, a reboot hits the funny pages. I love this strip so much that I, I want to bring it to a new generation and I want to translate it into terms they can understand. The first woman to draw the 85-year-old comic strip Nancy. Fewer jokes about Sluggo being poor. My name is Sluggo Smith. I'm new around here. Want to be my goyle? Next time on Studio 360.